Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Doug McCormick. He is the author of a new book called Family Inc., Using Business Principles to Maximize Your Family's Wealth. Welcome to the show, Doug. Can you hear me, Doug? Yes, I can, Jordan. Uh, thanks for having me on. Sure. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. So for Thank people you. who are not familiar with you, just kind of do a little bit of background on your history and how you are as a financial advisor now leading into writing this book. Just give us a brief history of your, your life so far. Sure. So it's uh, you know, been a bit of a circuitous route. Um, had a couple different careers. I um, started out my education at uh, West Point and, and did a Bachelor of Economics. Um, so I spent some time in active duty service and decided that that was a great experience, but not going to be a career for me. And so from there, I decided to make a career change, went back to business school, um, did a two-year program at Harvard. And then essentially for the last 20 years, I've been in the financial industry. So some time doing investment banking on Wall Street, uh, some time as an employee of a, a buy-side investment firm, and then really as an entrepreneur and an investor for the last uh, 10 plus years uh, when I started my own firm with, with a couple partners. And essentially, you know, I do money management work, but as a business owner, I feel like I'm an entrepreneur as well. So one of the key principles of your book is creating a, a family CFO, as you call it. Maybe just describe what a family CFO is. Sure. And I, you know, I think um, the insight comes from the fact that when I graduated uh, business school, I was trying to make sense of my own financial situation. And as I started in the financial management business, I realized that many of the principles that we were using to evaluate companies and make investments could be implied to my own situation. And so, uh, you know, over time, I started to kind of evolve that thinking and really concluded that, you know, if, if I told you that I was a small business owner and, you know, I had a chief financial officer in that business to help me manage the financial affairs, you would say, of course, that, that makes sense. Businesses don't run themselves. And, you know, I would say the same thing applies to family circumstances. You know, there's got to be somebody in the family that's kind of focused on the big picture. And I think many of us, uh, by nature, gravitate to the things that are timely or the things that, um, you know, are right in front of us. So we think about the budgets or we think about our investments. But a family CFO really takes a much broader view. They think about things like investments in education, about career choices, about risk management. They also think about budgets and investments, but it's really a, a much more holistic um, role. And I think, you know, if you can get somebody in the, in the family to really focus on that big picture, in many cases, the, the big financial decisions in life uh, will take care of the small stuff. So is there a certain dollar amount that you need to make it worthwhile to think of yourself as a family CFO? Do you need... 100,000, a million, I mean, is there something at which point it makes sense to do that and below that it might not make sense to do that? Yeah, I don't think so. Because um, I think this is a way of thinking that serves a person well throughout um, the kind of family life cycle, if you will. And so one of the key insights when you think about yourself as an entrepreneur or a business owner and having a family CFO is that in many cases, most of us have the most wealth when we're young. And what I mean by that is we may not have significant financial wealth, but we have significant wealth in the form of our labor. And so a good CFO is starting early with family members or yourself and thinking about how do I maximize the lifetime value of that labor potential? 
So we're going to get into detail of how you plan all this, but what is going wrong with people who are planning their finances who do not use the family CFO? I mean, what are they missing by not having that kind of function in mind? Well, I think in many cases, um, they're missing the big guiding principles. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book and one of the reasons I came up with the philosophy was that in isolation, a lot of advice sounds really good. You know, so if I said to you, make sure you invest in your retirement, and I said to you, make sure you, you know, pursue a career that, um, you know, will pay well and give you financial security or ensure your liabilities or your risks, all those things sound good. What I found difficult is how do I prioritize different um, things like that in the context of real-world situations? And so I think when people don't have a family CFO focus, it's not that um, they may be making a mistake wrong in their investments. It's that they're really not taking advantage of a big framework and they're not, in often cases, not taking advantage of their largest resources, which would be your labor or the appropriate time horizon. So you do have a whole chapter on what you call maximizing the value of your single biggest asset, which is your labor. And basically you're saying at a younger age, it's worth a lot more. And as you get older, it's worth less. At a certain point, you retire and it's worth nothing, basically. So how does one maximize the value of their labor? Uh, it, it seems like somebody just out of school or maybe somebody just out of graduate school doesn't think like they're at the peak of their earning power. They think they're just beginning. How does, how does somebody manage that correctly? Well, I think uh, the first thing you highlight is you appropriately identify that, you know, as you get older, your kind of degrees of freedom in terms of the things you can do with your labor, they begin to narrow. And so I think the book is a really interesting tool to engage with young folks that are getting ready to enter college or maybe have recently graduated college because the payback on the decisions they make will be the most valuable. Um, but, but really, if you, if you go to the fundamental insight of thinking about your labor as an asset, it kind of changes the question in terms of what you're trying to optimize around. And when you think about it over a lifetime, you start to make mer- many different choices about how do I maximize my lifetime labor value versus how do I get paid tomorrow. And examples would be the, the following. Um, when you're maximizing your lifetime labor value, education all of a sudden is a payback that you can look at over the next 30 years. So we talked today about how expensive education is, and I believe it is expensive. But if you think about the payback over the rest of your lifetime, um, better wage rates, less unemployment, more job flexibility, the ability to extend your career, investments in uh, education are still very good. Um, Also, thinking about that as an asset causes you to ask questions like, where do I get the most attractive skills? How do I build the best brand? And some of those choices may not maximize your wages next year, but as you think about it over a 30- or 40-year time horizon, those those kind of choices generally serve you well. So you're probably advising various families. Say you have a 17- or 18-year-old who doesn't particularly know what he wants to do. He may have some skills. Uh, How can you guide them to go into both an institution and then a major or some kind of a concentration once they're there to maximize the value of their labor when they, you know, somebody who's 17 or 18 may not have a a clear sense yet of what what they want to do with their lives. Yeah, I think it's totally appropriate and actually healthy for young folks not to have a great sense of what they are wanting to do uh, when they graduate. And I think in many cases, college is that great um, opportunity to expose yourself and really define uh, what your passion is. 
But I think if you're having the conversation and you can talk to that young person in the context of, first of all, this investment in education is a significant investment, probably the single biggest impacting investment you will make in a lifetime. Um, That's one concept. The second is let's make sure that you have the aptitude for the education and you really want to pursue a job that is focused um, on the skills that are required, you know, through the education. Uh, I think a conversation with young folks around um, what different skill sets garner in the market in terms of compensation is a really healthy one. And so, for example, there's a real clear trend that um, careers that focus on STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, pay substantially more than the humanities. Now, I'm not suggesting that someone should not pursue a career in in the humanities, but I think uh, an informed decision where people can realize that different choices result in different compensation outcomes, that kind of discussion for a young person, super valuable. The last thing I'd say is um, emphasizing that there's real opportunity costs to go into education. Not only are you going to spend a lot of money while you're pursuing your education, but you are foregoing the opportunity to make a wage, and so they should feel like they got to get there and, and make the most of the opportunity. So you have a table in your book uh, called Majors Matter, where you talk about the high kind of wage uh, undergraduate degrees, things like petroleum engineering and actuarial mathematics, nuclear engineering, electrical engineering, things like that. And then you've got the lower ones, things like child and family studies, elementary education, social work. So going into college, should people kind of estimate what they're going to earn based on what they're interested in and therefore take on different levels of debt or different amounts of tuition. Uh, I mean, you're saying maybe don't take on a huge private school tuition if you're going to be in social work and it's going to be a huge burden for you to pay it off. Is that part of what you do to help families make the right decisions? Absolutely. I think the, the, the fundamental um, conversation we're having is that you've got to make choices that are consistent with the lifestyle you're trying to create. And so, you know, if you really have a passion for a certain subject, but you've determined that that subject is not likely to garner significant um, income in the marketplace, that doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue that passion. It means that you need to understand that. And as a result of that, you make different kinds of choices as it pertains to how much debt can you afford to take on while you're going to school, where are you going to live, those kind of things. So are you seeing people doing it wrong? I mean, they're, they're going into, in effect, low-paid professions, but taking on a huge amount of debt that's going to be a burden to them for a long time. Yeah, I, and, and you know, I think you know, right or wrong, a lot of these things are value judgments, but I would say it this way. I don't think that they are making decisions as an informed consumer would. And so I get back to, I think, more knowledge and, and an understanding of the, the choices you're making today and the impact that it will have on your life for many years to come is a really important concept. And this is such a critical time in, young, in a young person's life and career, right? They're, they're 18, 19, 20, and we're asking them to make decisions that will influence their earnings trajectory for the next 30 or 40 years. I mean, that's pretty, you know, pretty heady stuff. And I think to have someone that's got a little bit more experience available to help them think through that longer-term time horizon is, is really valuable. Your website is familyinc.com. What can people find at that website that can help them with what we're talking about here? Yeah, a couple things. Uh, First of all, you'll find um, some philosophy on the book, some of the topics that the book covers. Uh, I think the most interesting uh, thing on the website is a variety of tools. And so, you know, one of the things that I propose in the book is that, you know, detailed budgets really aren't that helpful. And I try to get people focused on 
um, an income statement and a balance sheet. And so um, the website helps people create an income statement and a balance sheet. Unlike a lot of um, financial advisors, the balance sheet I um, suggest you create has a place where you estimate the lifetime value of your labor and estimate the value of your Social Security so you really see the whole picture about all of the assets available to you. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Doug McCormick. He's the author of a new book called Family, Inc., Using Business Principles to Maximize Your Family's Wealth. You can find out more about him at his website, which is familyinc.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Doug McCormick. He is a money manager with HCI Equity, and he's the author of a new book called Family, Inc., Using Business Principles to Maximize Your Family's Wealth. His website is familyinc.com. Welcome back to the show, Doug. Thanks, Jordan. Glad to be here. So we were talking about making decisions kind of in college to get the right major so you don't take on too much debt. And then once you get out of college, uh, you say how to make career choices that extend your possibilities. So what are some things people can do there? Yeah, I think, I think it's about, in uh, many cases, people underappreciate um, the flexibility that certain careers um, offer. And so I encourage people, you know, life is long, careers are long, uh, industry is moving rapidly, and things are changing rapidly. And so developing a skill set that um, is likely to be employable in many different geographies, uh, in many different industries, I think is super helpful. So for example, um, you know, financial skills like accounting, or being a controller, chief financial officer, 
those skills are relevant in any business, any industry, any geography. Same thing with human resources. Same thing with information technology. Um, so it's it's a, about developing a skill set that will be readily deployable, um, no matter where you go or where that industry goes. And I think that's um, founded in the premise that we should all look at ourselves as business owners, and as an a young person, really what you're doing is you're in the business of selling your labor. And when you think about it that way, I think you make uh, different choices than normal career management. So some people do that. Most people probably go from college or graduate school into some kind of a job. But the other alternative is entrepreneurship. And you write a lot about entrepreneurship. When is it appropriate for somebody with an idea for business to become an entrepreneur? Say they haven't had many years at a big company and been an employee. Is that appropriate or not? Uh, you know, I think it can be. Um, so the, the thing I would say is, first of all, I think entrepreneurship um, is likely the surest way to financial security, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but in general, I believe you know, entrepreneurship is basically a combination of putting your capital and your labor together, combining those two to create a business. And when you do that, you often shelter um, the returns you can get on your capital and labor, i.e. you get better returns. Uh, the tax code is favorable to entrepreneurship, Entrepreneurs can generally work longer, and if you do things really well, you can sell a business at the end of it. And so, all of that together collectively creates a really compelling opportunity. I think the thing that people miss about entrepreneurship is, you know, we're so enamored with the huge success stories in America today, like Facebook and Google and um, you know Tesla, and those are fantastic stories. But you don't have to take that kind of risk to be an entrepreneur. There's lots of opportunities to be a small business owner in your current hometown. And so I'm a big fan of developing skills as an employee and then leveraging those skills in a business application that's not very high risk. So you're saying take a regular job, learn something you have a passion about, do it on the side, and build it up before you leave your job to do it. Don't kind of yeah, throw everything yeah, I, into I the I think this concept right? of you know, jumping off the deep end without a plan usually turns out poorly. Um, but if you can leverage relationships and skill sets and, and you have enough knowledge that the plan becomes very clear, I think that's generally an indicator that you're ready to take a, take a jump into ownership or entrepreneurship. So what role would a parent play in helping their child decide to you know, get a job at a regular company or become an entrepreneur? Should, should the parent put money into the entrepreneurial venture? Because there's a lot of intricacies involved when you get into interfamily situation and you say family CEO is supposed to kind of look out at the long situation here. Yeah, well, so there's a real hard, uh, challenging convergence here between family dynamics and financial dynamics. And so let me just comment that I don't have all the answers for that. And I think it's somewhat family dependent. Uh, but I think the first thing a parent can do to um, put their child in a position that they can have this conversation or make informed decisions is start this conversation very early. You know, so exposing your kids to financial terms, you know, cost of money, um, insurance, career choice advice, those kind of things, is, is a conversation that hopefully is starting at a very early age. A lot of the skills that we're talking about, you know, I'm, I'm an almost 50-year-old adult, and I'm still working at them, getting better and improving. And so I think you've got to realize it takes a long time. Um, I wouldn't say this is absolute advice, but I think the concept of parents um, investing in a startup um, that is uh, a child's um, is, is probably a challenging one because I think it's a rare family that can differentiate or separate the business um, merits versus you know the family expectations. And I actually think um, forcing someone to find capital outside of the family 
is an interesting test of the market, test of the idea, and it ensures that everybody is, you know, executing on the merits of the idea as opposed to the, the uh, parent-child um, expectations. Yes. Another part of the family CEO you talk about is retirement benefits, and you say don't overlook retirement benefits just because they're not imminent. Is that something you find people do? They're kind of so focused on the present that they don't put money aside for the future? Always. Uh, well, not always, but very, very frequently. I think, uh, in general, one of the big mistakes that we all make is uh, we don't appreciate um, the long, very long time horizon that we have, and we're all focused on how do I maximize my opportunity set this year or next year. And so I actually think it's a real competitive advantage if you can force yourself to think out in terms of decades or even further. But, for example, when you're evaluating a job, you know, we talked about um, identifying the skill sets you'll develop, the brand you'll develop. Obviously, you're focused on the compensation this year and next. But to understand the retirement benefits, is there a defined benefit plan versus a contribution plan? Are there stock options? Those things likely have much longer payouts um, but can be very meaningful in your overall financial security picture. And insurance, another thing you say when you're evaluating a job, what are some of the insurance benefits people should be looking for in deciding to take one job over another? Yeah, I, I think um, it's less about the specific insurance benefits and more about that you are appreciating and applying a value to the benefits that you are getting. And so what I hate to see people do is they look at one job that has um, minimal uh, benefits such as you know, health care, um, disability insurance, et cetera, and they compare that to another job that has significant benefits and they don't factor in the difference because ultimately that is going to impact um, you know, kind of your after-tax take-home compensation. And so you just need to really make sure you're evaluating apples and, and apples. So the main insurances, you, life insurance, disability insurance, health insurance, would those would be the three main ones you're looking for when you're taking a job? Um, yeah, and a lot of those I think you are likely to find outside of the workplace. For example, disability insurance is something that's commonly not offered at work, um, but I would say is, is probably the area where people are most underinsured. You know, the, the probability that a family is going to experience some um, significant period of unemployment or underemployment because of an injury or sickness um, over a lifetime is pretty high, and most of us um, don't prepare well for that one. So I would say that's, that's the one if you, you said, hey, I'm thinking about different insurances, I want to make sure I've, I'm covered appropriately, is the one that often presents the biggest challenge. And then on life insurance, is that something that you think people should start early and use it to build up cash value over time because it's tax-free, or is it? Are you a buy term and invest the difference kind of person? Yeah, I'm more of a uh, term guy for the most part. So in general, I, I often say I think insurance is a loser's game. You should always expect to get less from the payout than you put in, assuming some reasonable rate of return. Having said that, I still think it's a valuable product because insurance is essentially preventing the going out of business scenario. So I'm trying to get compensated when, you know, me as the primary income earner passes away, then I've left enough uh, capital for my family to continue living as they are used to. So I'm, I'm generally advising, make sure you have all the appropriate insurances, minimize the amount of insurance, and insure against the going out of business scenario. Don't look at it as a way to... Uh, you know, kind of make money, if you will. Uh -huh. Then you have a whole thing on the elements of asset management. So why don't you just basically go through what the key elements are of asset management that people should think about when they're 
figuring out how to allocate their assets? Um, yeah, I think the the number one mistake I see people make is that when you think about asset allocation, you got to, in my mind, you have to include all of your assets. Um, so we talked earlier about um, labor is a significant asset, Social Security is a significant asset. Uh, both of those assets, in my mind, uh, behave very much like an annuity or a fixed income instrument. So in general, I'm a fan of more equity exposure, um, given the significant um, fixed income-like assets you have with your labor and your fixed income. Um, as you think about putting together a portfolio, uh, I care less about um, liquidity in the context of um, diversification and more about liquidity in the context of what will the family need for a period of time. And so as I think about how much cash or contingency reserves a family needs, it's based on how much that family is spending in a given year or 18-month period. Um, the other thing I think about asset allocation is that um, the highest returning investments are likely in your career and entrepreneurship. Um, if you're going to invest in public equities, I'm a fan of relatively passive um, investment vehicles. And all of this should be thought about in the very long-term time horizon. So I'm, I think to try to predict where the market is going this year or next is, is a fool's errand. Um, but if you think about expected returns over you know, many years, um, you're likely to be pretty close to the mark. So you have a whole chapter in your book about asset management being passive or, or active. Uh, active managers say that they're always going to beat the market and they're going to give you alpha and those kind of things. Why do you not believe them? Why do you think that passive is usually the way to go? Well, um, first of all, I think the right way to evaluate performance is after tax, after fees, inflation adjusted returns. And so in many cases, that's uh, very difficult to get to the bottom line. Uh, the second is I actually do think that there are some markets that are inefficient. I think some asset managers um, can return alpha. I think it's very hard for um, retail investors and individuals to identify um, who those managers are. And so it's not that I believe in total efficient markets. It's more that I believe that consumers are not very well positioned to identify um, those managers. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Doug McCormick. Uh, he is a money manager and author of a new book called Family Inc., Using Business Principles to Maximize Your Family's Wealth. You can find out more about him and his book and his firm at familyinc.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Doug McCormick. He's a money manager based in Washington, D.C., and he talks about family CEOs and CFOs. His book is called Family, Inc., uh, using business principles to maximize your family's wealth. Uh, his website is familyinc.com. Welcome back to the show, Doug. Thank you, Jordan. Glad to be here. One of the things you talk about is debt, and you say not all debt is bad, that you should use debt to purchase assets and maximize your liquidity. So people generally do have the impression that all debt is bad. So what what is wrong with their normal uh, notion about this? Well, I think, um, you know, there's this, uh, it is true that if you never incur debt, you dramatically reduce your financial risk associated with um, uh, inability to pay. Having said that, I would argue in many cases, you've also foregone consumption or you've foregone investments that would have been good investments. So I think the classic example is you use debt to finance things that you couldn't purchase otherwise, or even if you could, maybe uh, cheaper to use debt that are assets that are likely going to return more than the investment. So let's talk about education. We've talked about that a little bit earlier, but over a lifetime, that should result in a significant uh, return on your investment. And so I would argue that people that need to or have the ability to finance education with debt, that's an appropriate use of that money. Uh, Purchasing a house is another great example. Um, When you purchase assets, you generally are able to finance things for very long terms. So in a house, it's often as much as 30 years, uh, and the interest rates are often better. And in many cases, the interest that you pay is actually tax deductible. So the expected return on a lot of that debt is relatively low. And so if you leave your uh, money in the market, you're likely um, to to beat the return that you would have uh, paid out on your debt anyway. Uh, The thing to avoid is things that um, help you consume. So... Um, purchasing dinners, purchasing trips, even cars that depreciate rapidly, that arguably is not as good of use of your debt. So you're saying the two main good uses of debt, well, three, would be for your education, which is going to have a payoff, for investments that pay off, and for your home, which is going to pay off. Those are the three main debts that you think are appropriate? Yeah, that I think that's right. Um, and I think uh, the one that's a little bit on the on the border that can be difficult is um, debts for investment. I see people do that. I think in theory, there's been a lot of good studies that would say, you know, having some debt uh, relative to public market investments is, is appropriate. Um, but when you see how that turns out and somebody's ability to kind of stay in the market when it's volatile, um, I've not seen that work out particularly well. So they freak out when it's down and they, they buy high and sell low is what you're saying. You right? got it. And obviously when you finance it with debt, your, your wins are greater and your losses are greater. You've introduced volatility into that equation. You also talk a lot about alternative investments. What are some alternative investments beyond traditional 
stock bonds, ETFs, passive index funds. What are some of the alternatives that you like to uh, use for your clients? Um, so the, the first thing I'd say is everybody has a chance to do uh, some form of alternatives through entrepreneurship. So if, if you're investing in yourself, you're investing in a business, you know that business, I think that's a pretty good bet. Um, the second is uh, alternative assets, things like private equity, venture capital, uh, commodities, things like timber or farmland are all interesting. Um, I think the things that are interesting about those asset classes are, um, in some cases, I think you get paid for the illiquidity associated with them. So um, some of those alternative asset classes have historically delivered better returns than the public markets. Uh, and also, the persistence of outperformance is better. And what I mean by that is, if you found an investor that has performed well in their asset class, you know, the last five years, the likelihood that they're going to beat the market or beat their market is better than if you went to some, look at something in the public markets. So I think it's easier to pick good managers there. Uh-huh. Okay. And then as far as pick managers, you have a whole chapter on understanding when it makes sense to pick individual stocks and individual managers so that you're not only doing, uh, you know, index funds. When does it make sense to do that? Well, I think the truth is rarely. Um, I think in general, um, I believe that the passive approach is the best approach for most individuals. Um, I'll give myself as an example. You know, I'm, I'm in the business. Um, I have lots of contacts. I've had formal education, and I actually enjoy it. And so, in spite of the fact that I think in some cases it's not always the best advice, I like to also do, um, you know, manage my own portfolio. And I think in those regards, um, you have to make sure that um, you're not over-concentrating your positions and it's, it's a small part of the overall portfolio. Hopefully you pick up a little bit of incremental return, but it's not um, driving the overall um, asset allocation or the portfolio. So the core is really index funds. So if you were to set yeah. up a core portfolio, what index funds would you put in it? Not um, by names, so so I'm, like I'm a big caps, fan of uh, attempting to mimic the overall global market as much as possible. And so, uh, you know, rough, you know, and think about it in terms of relative market cap. So U.S. markets, uh, slightly more than half of the market, um, you know, established international, let's call it another uh, 30%. And then you've got um, emerging markets at 15%. Um, I do think there is a place for fixed income, uh, but I really view fixed income as a liquidity reserve when you need to tap into it because of unexpected uh, needs or near-term consumption. And then keep relatively small amount in cash equivalents, basically. Yep. Okay. You, you have a whole chapter on what you call the psychological factors that torpedo your goals. So this is getting more into the psychology of things, but I just want to go over some of these things. These are kind of the biases that people have. One of them is what's called ownership bias. What is, uh, what is that and how do you combat it? Yeah, the, I think the ownership bias is the one that says, you know, if I own it, I love it. It's a great thing and I can't let go of it at any price. And the whole goal around these biases is understanding they exist and just at least being aware. And you may choose that you, you know the bias, you know you're making a choice that may be suboptimal, but you still do it anyway. Uh, it, again, it gets back to informed consumerism. So say you bought a stock, it went down, but you still like the company. You don't want to sell it because you're kind of loyal to it or something. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah, and, and uh, in all, in the reality is if I bought a stock and it went down and I still can convince myself that the investment merits um, make sense, you know, I think it's the absolute wrong time to sell it. But at the same time, um, being able to acknowledge that your investment thesis was wrong 
um, and being able to get rid of something when you when you did make a mistake is is equally valuable. It, and then another activity that I think is hard for many people to get to get to. It is hard to do that, indeed. Another bias is what you call the sunk cost bias. What do you mean by that? Well, that's the classic, like, you know, hey, I've already spent um, the money to go on a trip. I really don't want to go on the trip, so I've spent $1,000 on an airplane ticket. If I go, it's going to cost me another $1,000 in stuff. I don't want to go, but I've spent the 1000 So the right, you know, rational answer would be um, just don't spend the extra 1000 and don't go on the trip you don't want to go on. But many of us feel like we've already made a commitment. We've spent the money. We've got to take advantage of it. And then you have what you call the budgeting bias. What do you mean by that? Um, budgeting bias is the reason that many of us always miss budgets. Um, we rarely anticipate all the negative things that are going to happen. Um, but when a windfall happens in a positive form, we often think we can spend it. And so we, we have a tendency to... Um, act as if the good things that happen will happen again, and therefore we spend them, and the bad things were one time and unlikely to happen again, and so we don't account for them or plan for them. So it's, it's a, a positive, I mean, it's a too optimistic bias is what you're saying. Basically. Exactly, yep. And then you have what you call lump sum bias. Uh, is that similar where you've got a certain lump sum and you don't know what to do? If you do yeah, get a lump sum, it's kind bias. of a windfall. So, so, what know, is the better say, way to If you win the lottery, uh, don't do anything for six months and then um, you know, come up with a thoughtful plan about how to, how to manage it. A lot of times there's been all kinds of studies that would suggest when people get paid a lump sum, they are more likely to spend it quickly or in a frivolous manner than somebody who you know, got a consistent paycheck over the entire year. And then you, which, you have what you call deal bias. What do you mean by that? Uh, some people love a deal. And so, you know, are you the kind of person that um, ends up buying something not because you needed it or wanted it, but you just could not resist the deal? And I think, you know, economists would say there's actually, um, you know, utility or joy that comes from, quote, getting a good deal. But if you really didn't need it or want it, um, I think that's relatively short-lived. I guess marketers are good at making you buy things you don't need by saying you're getting such a deal, right? Yeah. Exactly. And then you have what you call compartmentalization bias. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that's kind of when um, a lot of people come up with pots of money. And so um, the reality is if you put all of your assets in one you know, big pot, if you will, and then figure out how to allocate them to the highest and best use, that generally results in the best outcome. But people sometimes don't think about it that way. They have their Christmas fund. They have their investment fund. They have... Um, their college fund, and they keep all little separate buckets. And that's a difficult way to come to put together a, a kind of big, big overall coherent um, asset allocation strategy. And I think it also um, often puts people in a situation where they don't tap into all the resources they have. And then you have what you call size bias. What do you mean by that? Oh, size bias. Uh, you know, it's uh, I'm actually at a loss for that one. I think it is revolving around um, do we size the investments appropriately and do we appreciate the risk associated with a particular size of the investment. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of every investment has a return expectation relative to um, the percent of the portfolio it represents. And you're also saying that small numbers have outsized consequences like small management fees over time can really add up is what you're saying. 
Yep, and it's, it has to do with um, how they're characterized. So if I said to you the management fee is a percent of assets under management, people think that doesn't seem like a big deal. If I said to you that your expected return over the next 10 years is 5% a year, and now the management fee represents 20% of your expected gain, uh, that's a very different way to think about that math. And then you talk about hindsight bias. What does that mean? Uh, it's when something happens, and with the benefit of that, that thing happening, um, you convince yourself that you knew that all along. And so it often leads people to um, overconfidence. And so, you know, for example, um, today uh, Amazon is one of the most valuable, maybe the most valuable company in the world. In 2000, 2001, when it was losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and was still valued at many billions of dollars, it was a brave, you know, kind of visionary investor that stuck by that stock. And so today, it's obvious that Amazon was a great deal, and you can convince yourself you saw that, but the reality is uh, very few people did. And then you talk about loss aversion bias. What do people do to avoid losing? Um, They become over-conservative. So there's all kinds of studies that say that the pain of loss is generally um, greater than the joy of gain. And so for many of us, we'd rather be, um, you know, we'd rather be conservative and avoid loss um, at the expense of uh, generating a real outsized return. And so just understanding that, that many people have that conservative bias, I think is helpful. So you're saying that's not something people should do. They should be willing to take more risk because otherwise their returns are going to be pretty low. If they're worried about losing all the time, they're not exposing themselves to the possibility of significant gains. Yep, yep, and it, it's obviously a, a balancing act, but um, you know, there's there's that fine line, and we'll you know we talk about some of the big risks later. But um, to a certain extent, you've got risk on either side. If if you're too conservative, um, inflation risk or um, you know outliving your assets is a big risk, and if you're too aggressive, um, you know uh, portfolio volatility is your big risk. And your final bias is what you call extrapolation bias. What do you mean by that? Um, you know, things seem to be going in a pattern for a very long period of time until they don't. And in many cases, um, we all think that uh, history is representative of the future. I think it's an important data point. Uh, but, you know, these things um, seem to demonstrate trends, and then there are significant dislocations in the market. So, you know, look at the equities markets in 07, 08. Look at um, natural gas and petroleum prices um, in the last three years. And you can see significant dislocation that no one would have predicted, you know, six months before they did. Just because it's going up doesn't mean it's going to continue to go up forever, basically. Exactly. All right, we're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Douglas McCormick. He's the author of a book called Family, Inc., Using Business Principles to Maximize Your Family's Wealth. You can see more about him at his website, which is familyinc.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. 
is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Doug McCormick, author of a book called Family Inc., Using Business Principles to Maximize Your Family's Wealth. He talks about the family CFO, for example. A website to find out more about him is familyinc.com. Welcome back to the show, Doug. Uh, Thank you, Jordan. So as you get towards retirement, you say that there are various ways that your family business can change in retirement. What are some ways, once you get to retirement, that you kind of have a different financial plan than when you're in your working years. Yeah, I think the the, the first thing is to acknowledge that once you retire, um, your kind of degrees of freedom to, to get to a good sound financial plan um, diminish dramatically. And what I mean by that is the whole premise of the book is that we're business owners. And throughout life, most of us own two different businesses. We own our labor business where we're selling our, our labor into the marketplace and we own our money management business, which is designed to you know accumulate capital for when we have run out of labor and essentially retired. So once you retire, you're essentially down to one business, and now you've got to make um, the assets that you've accumulated support your consumption for the rest of your life. And so you're in a a somewhat different position because you don't have the ability to work longer. You don't have the ability to save more uh, because you've essentially depleted that labor. And so um, you you do have to take a more conservative position um, with your asset capital. So one of the things you talk about is annuities and how you purchase annuities in a certain way. Social Security is an annuity. You've been building it up many years, and you're paying, it's paying out over time. But do you think taking some assets and putting them into some kind of annuity is a good way to have a, a regular payment stream in retirement? Yeah, I do. So, so you and I talked a little bit earlier about insurance. And in general, I am a believer that insurance is a, a loser's game, uh, but a necessary evil because it offers you know, kind of valuable predictability. And I think annuities kind of uh, meets that definition. So if you've accumulated tremendous wealth, um, then I would generally not be a fan of annuities because I don't think um, significant wealth, you don't need that certainty. Um, but if you think there's a possibility of, of running out of, of assets or outliving your assets, then the annuity essentially serves as insurance from living too long. Uh, so we, we call it a longevity insurance. And, you know, the, one of the biggest risks that many um, retirees face is 
that with medical advancements, they're living to the point that they're exhausting their resources ahead of them, and annuities can help solve that problem. I think the key thing to remember in that scenario is the later you buy an annuity um, in life, the more longevity insurance you're buying and the less fixed income you're buying. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of deferring this decision for as long as possible to get kind of the most juice or the biggest bang for your buck. So what should people expect getting an annuity today? What kind of rates of return, say you're in your 70s, something like that, you've, you've built up a pile and you want to have regular payments. What would be a good annuity for people to get today as far as what they should expect? Oh, good, good question. So, so there's two different concepts here. Um, the first is return on your investment, and the second is kind of annual yield. Um, and so those two, two things can be dramatically different um, for someone late in life. So these are examples, but let's just say, for example, that you purchase something when you're um, 70, uh, and for $100,000, you may get a payout that's you know, high single digits. So let's say uh, $7,000 a year. Um, so that's the payout, but that's not the return because we don't know how long you're going to live. And if you live to be 90, it was a really good investment with a pretty good IRR. If you live to be 71 or 72, obviously that was a really bad investment, uh, but you protected your, yourself from the possibility of outliving your resources. Um, so, so big variation late in life between expected yield, which is the annuity payment per annum relative to what it costs you, and the ultimate IRR, which is more driven by what your ultimate um, life expectancy is. And then another kind of insurance in retirement is long-term care insurance to cover costs if you can't kind of handle things yourself. Uh, it gets very expensive if you buy it in retirement. Isn't it better to buy it younger? And when do you think it makes sense to get long-term care insurance? And when does it not make sense? Yeah, so once again, um, to the extent you've accumulated significant wealth, I think this is an insurance that you can self-insure. Um, this does get very expensive. Um, I do uh, struggle a little bit with um, a number of the policies out there today uh, because they, are, um, they have provisions which can change the terms uh, based on the cost of health care. Um, and so this is a, this is a challenging product, uh, but it's also a significant need for many families. My general advice here is um, if you get back to the, the number one goal of insurance, it's, it's insuring against the going out of business risk. And the way I think you do that is you buy insurance that has, you know, a significant cap in terms of the ultimate payout, but you've minimized the cost to you by having, um, you know, exclusion periods uh, and things that allow it to be affordable. You talk about avoiding the rat race by changing the game and changing the rules. What are some of the things you mean in that area? Uh, this is really a commentary around entrepreneurship. And so, you know, I'll, I'll say it to you this way. Long-term expected returns on equity um, maybe are 5 or 6%, uh, especially if we say those are real returns. Um, and the average uh, uh, person in America owns a, or earns about 50000 a year. And I give you both of those examples because they, those are both a product of competition. There's competition in the labor markets, and there's competition in the investment markets. Having said that, my experience has been when you combine your capital and your labor to, cr to create a business – um, that business is often able to shelter um, you from competition a little bit in a way that you can drive outsized returns on your, your wage rates, i.e. how much you pay yourself, as well as your capital rates because you've got uh, capital invested in the business. And I think you know, successful entrepreneurs generate returns that are substantially better uh, than the public markets. 
Then you talk about how you can jumpstart your heirs' financial security, uh, wills and estates. What are some things that people can do to jumpstart the financial security for the next generation? So um, we talked about a couple of these, but I think first and foremost, you've got to start this conversation early. Um, sound financial skills uh, take a lifetime to develop, and this is something that you need to begin to socialize at a relatively young age. Uh, you know, the second thing is that I would say, um, you know, inheritance and giving, passing along assets uh, can be a tremendous resource for the family. But I think you have to acknowledge if you don't impart the right values, it can also be a real liability for families. And so I've seen, you know, families really struggle with the perverse incentives that relate to uh, passing down wealth. Um, and then once you once you kind of uh, address both of those things, you know, I think uh, putting yourself in a situation where you can support uh, the next generation as they invest in themselves, and so helping them navigate big investments like education, um, helping them think about maximizing their own labor value through good sound decision making. And I think that's where um, you know families can really support one another. And you know, in general, I think if if the families accumulated significant wealth, it should allow the individual to continue to take more risk. Um, and I mean risk in terms of portfolio. I mean risk in terms of career choice. And in general, both of those things, um, if, if done prudently, uh, result in better return on your labor and your capital assets. In about two minutes we have left, why don't you kind of summarize what a difference it will make in people's and families' lives to follow what you've talked about here and have a family CFO as opposed to not having one? Yeah, I think the, the, the key takeaways are, you know, first and foremost, a family CFO follows, or a, follows and informs the family on the big financial decisions in life. So this is not about, you know, can I afford to go to Starbucks on a Friday or do I need to make coffee at home? This is about identifying the key things that are really going to change the trajectory in the family. Investments in education, good career management, uh, risk mitigation, and a good investment portfolio. The second thing is, uh, you know, we tend to focus on the things that are here and now that are timely, and many of the things that we just talked about are going to be very important over a lifetime, but they're never going to be timely. And so to have someone that's always thinking about these important financial decisions in spite of that fact um, to kind of safeguard the family, I think, is a real uh, asset for the family. Terrific. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Doug McCormick. His book is called Family, Inc., Using Business Principles to Maximize Your Family's Wealth. You can find out more about him and his website, which is familyinc.com. Thanks so much for being a great guest on The Money Answer Show, Doug. Hey, thank you, Jordan. Really enjoyed it. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.